0: My name is Rabbi Bassus, and I'd like to welcome you to the first in our series on love and marriage. Hope you all have this uh, sheet. and you can in. Some years ago, I had the occasion to officiate of the marriage of a young American man to a beautiful American woman. The groom was an Orthodox Jew reared in a strictly orthodox home where the father wore a beard, mother wore a shaitel. The bride on the other hand was raised in the usual Jewish American manner. The wedding ceremony had come to an end. The glass had been broken. She turned towards him and suddenly he seemed in a quandary. Immediately I She was waiting for a kiss, which would reassure the assembled family and friends that this marriage was built on real and deep love. All of her married friends had made this kissful pronouncement. He, on the other hand, may never have beheld his own parents kissing each other, and was taught that love should be exhibited privately rather than displayed publicly. So she was expectant and he was hesitant. But she was an alert young lady, and so without waiting, she threw her arms around him and gave him a big kiss. Somehow, a text in the Bible came to mind. The book of Ruth begins with a husband and two sons, leaving for Moab to escape a famine in Judah, In Moab, the boys marry local girls, Orpah and Ruth, Then tragedy strikes, the father dies, the two sons die, and Nomi is left with the two daughter-in-laws. On the way, Nomi says, I want to go back to my homeland. And one daughter-in-law kisses her and leaves. The Bible says, Ruth clings to her and does not let her mother go. So we see two things. Kissing, which has denot, uh, denotes in the Torah, kissing and saying goodbye. Or clinging, which is, shows more of a commitment. Here in a stroke is a statement of two approaches to life. Kissing and cleaving. Kissing bespeaks outward manifestation, momentary emotion, a pleasurable act. Cleaving emphasizes inner faith, inner truth, continued commitment. At times, the two are separated by a great gulf of feeling and action. In today's world, obviously, kissing is the fashion. The locked embrace appears on the front page of the newspaper, on the television screen, every movie, the theater. As an accompaniment to clinging, this may be All the good. But when it stands by itself, when kissing stands by itself, how meaningful is a kiss by itself? Traditional Judaism never considered love a prerequisite to marriage. We're going to discuss what what we define as love. Matches were arranged by parents with help from God, but boy and girl knew the words of Genesis. In chapter 2, verse 24, the Bible tells us, Therefore shall a person leave his father and mother, and shall cling to his father, and they shall be one flesh. Marriage was built on mutual goals, identification one with the other, forbearance and respect. Its soil was sacrifice and effort, out of which love bloomed and happiness grew. A wedding not only to kissing. So that's the ideal, is clinging. Let me give you an example. An executive in a large office office had a new secretary who was very, very... Different. He tried to make a very light conversation with her and he asked her, he said, what's the matter? He says, are you in love? She said, no, I'm married. She was right. One can kiss one's way to the canopy, but not to endure marital bliss. Too many marriages end in the courts, not because divorce is too easy, because people think marriage is too easy. The kissing attitude may be responsible not only for the broken home, but also for juveniles, delinquent juveniles, too often children are raised by kissing rather than clinging. Father and mother kiss them and say goodbye, and they don't see them till much later on in the day. So that's one of the problems with today's side. It's all show. Hollywood is all show. The kiss and the kiss and the kiss, and then what happens a year later, the marriage is over, and they move on to husband number one, number two, number three, number four, number five, and wife number three, number four, number five. What is the definition of love? we find that romantic love with a bit of background and history of love grew as an ideology in France during the last quarter of the 12th century its uh, theoretical basis was formulated by a French writer in a book called The Art of Courtly Love this idea was carried to the different parts of France by the troubadours Wandering musicians who wandered from place to place. And this idea spread through Europe very rapidly, even into the narrow confines of the Jewish world who were in the ghettos at that time. Rabbi Judah the Pious, Rabbi Judah Hasid, who was a rabbi in Germany in the 12th century, he comments in his book, Sefer Hasid, The Guide for the Pious, with the often quoted phrase, he says, As the Gentile goes, so goes the Jew. We copy. We copy one from the other. So this idea of romantic love spread from the French through Europe and eventually even into the confines of the ghetto. What is romantic love? First definition is pure love, which is the contemplation of the mind and the affection of the heart, but finds no physical fulfillment. And this is Romeo and Juliet, classic case of love. That's the icon class case of love, the French ideal of love, pure love unsullied by physical touching. Then you have mixed love, whose desire has been fulfilled, however, infrequently. So that's mixed. It's pure and it's not pure, it's mixed love. It is the idea of pure, unfulfilled love, which is celebrated by this famous play, Romeo and Juliet, etc. The transition in the Jewish community, from Shadchan, traditional way of marriage, through matchmaking, to romance, most confusing to many Jews. And this is illustrated in the two songs in Fill on the Roof. I'm sure you've all seen Fiddle on the Roof. So there are two songs over there which illustrate this transition in the Jewish world. The first one is Matchmaker, Matchmaker. where daughter hopes that the Shadchan will bring her a mate who is both suitable to her parents, but also suitable for herself. Two different issues. Well, her father, after 25 years of marriage, has bit the bullet of romantic love and asks his wife, Do you love me? And she can't understand the question. She says, like, I cook for you, I bake for you, I wash your clothes. What do you want from me? What is it? So she understood love as commitment. I'm committed to you fully. I do everything for you. What more do you want? And he was mixed up with his French attitude of unfulfilled love. Do you love me in your mind? Tevia's wife does not understand. She washes his shirts, she has his children, cares for him 25 years, and after 25 years he asks her the question, do you love me? If that is not love, she says, what is love? Love to her is demonstrating action. But he has caught the fever of romance and nothing will help. He wants to know, do you love me? The void left by the disappearance of the matchmaker has been filled today by an elaborate courtship procedure. While it is true that most people cannot or will not go back to the old days of the sh- cantankerous shadchan, we need to ask ourselves whether our complicated and frustrating dating game really leads to more marital happiness. So it's coming back in a way you have, today you have computer dating, you have personals, and now big business. We're going back to a sort of matchmaking. It's amazing how society is going around in circles. In a book called, Marriages East and West, the dating game is described as a vast Noah's Ark. That was last week's Torah portion. Perhaps arranged marriages in a way are not too bad. Other writers declare that the trouble with the American marriage is our style of courtship. It is artificial, juvenile, premature. It emphasizes romance, sex appeal, charm, affluence. To the exclusion of deeper, more enduring aspects of character. Honesty, integrity, hard work, etc. We find there's a story in the Talmud, in the Torah, of Samson. Samson, it says, was one of the judges of Israel. Very, very strong guy. Uh, Black belt. In uh, karate, judo, whatever. He could take on hundreds of other guys and beat them. But he had one failing. The Talmud tells us, he says, Samson went after his eyes. Samson, as far as Samson was concerned, he ran after beauty. And what had happened to Samson? He ended up with Delilah, and that was the end of him. His eyes were put out by the Philistines. They caught him. Charles Darwin once said, people are more careful, this is talking about the British, the upper class British, 100 years ago. People are more careful with the character and pedigree of their horses when they breed them than they are of their potential marriage partners. So he's talking about the upper-class British, very careful about their horses, when it came to who they married, they weren't so careful. A contemporary French scholar says, we are in the act of trying out and failing miserably at one of the most pathological experiments that a civilized society has ever imagined, the basing of marriage, which is lasting upon romance, which is a passing fancy. The question we have to ask ourselves is, are we happier? Do our marriages last longer? Will romance be able to replace the old systems of producing stable families which have characterized Jewish life from its inception? Let's talk a bit about the hazards of romance. And This is question number five, really, in the list you have. I'm going backwards in the list. Question number five. The hazards of romance. Romantic love is often expressed in terms of sickness in romantic poems. People feel madly in love. The love is out of this world. I'm crazily, I'm crazier in love with you. Wasn't that a song? The lover is moonstruck. Doesn't sound very healthy to me. Everyone's going crazy over here. Romantic love is based on an idealized notion of the other person, which requires remoteness, psychological, physical, or social remoteness to be maintained. Why? Because I have a vision in my mind, and that's the vision which I want to keep in my mind. Once I get too close, that vision, that bubble bursts, and I'm back down to reality. Pure romantic love is applied only to love outside marriage. It's interesting. How many love songs do you know of where, where there are songs to their partner, the spouse. How many movies are made showing love between people in marriage? And the answer is romantic love does not exist in marriage. It's interesting. The potion of romance must include an ingredient of secrecy and mystery. Romance is therefore primarily a premarital or extramarital association. And that's shown today by today's soap operas. Cinemas, singers do not often sing of romantic love within marriage, the care for children, or the mutuality of love in old age. We don't find movies or songs written about those things. Very few. Romantic love is, by its own definition, something beyond or out of this world which cannot be contained in the restricting narrow confines of married life. Love is blind is a very common term. Love is not altogether blind, but it is nearsighted enough to be able to see what is agreeable to the senses, but not necessarily to common sense. The person may be attracted to, the senses may attract it, but when it comes back to common sense, totally out of it, totally out of the picture. Burdened with romantic myopia, the nearsighted lover cannot discriminate between true love and infatuation. And there is a difference. A lover chosen in this way may be utterly unfit for marriage. So, the question we have to ask ourselves is is a cute smile a qualification for responsible child raising? Are broad shoulders and a strong jaw? You see the Marlborough man, what happened to him? Marlboro man uh, ad. He died of cancer, right? Obviously, okay. What's the idea? People have this impression broad shoulders, a strong jaw are signs of integrity. Benjamin Franklin was right when he said, keep your eyes wide open before marriage and half shut afterwards. Romance places an illusion that a mate must be capable of producing a life of continuous ecstasy. Unfortunately, passion has a tendency to spend itself very quickly. Romantic love by holding out the possibility of perpetual passion raises unrealistic expectations. When no passion is experienced, and the embers have cooled, many people feel that their marriages have failed. And they start looking for the exit sign. No passion anymore. What do I do? As Oscar Wilde noted cynically, one should always be in love. And therefore, he says, never get married. Not very happily. But uh, different kind of marriage, yeah? The religious ethic holds That sex and love must be integrally related. Secular ethic holds the two may be totally separate. Today's phenomenon is sex is physical, love is emotional. Two different things. This conflict leads to one of the most dangerous hazards of romantic love. The equation of sexual desire with love. That's one of the big problems we have in society today. Too often the words, I love you, are only a come on for a physical relationship. Love is the word used to label the sexual excitement of the young, someone put it, the habituation of the middle-aged and the mutual dependence of the old. Let me just ask you a question. Let us uh, ask you a question. When you uh, talk about loving food, let me give you an example. Anyone over here loves apples? Do you love apples? you love apples? If I love apples, how do I express my love to the apple? I love the apple, I eat it. Is that the way you treat something you love? So what, something wrong with the word love over here. If I love something, what do I do with the thing? What does a person mean when they say, I love apples? What they really mean is, I desire the apple for myself, because I love myself. I love myself and I want the apple. uh, similarly in relationships a person can say I love you but all too often it means I want you because I love myself I love myself and that's why people use each other they use and abuse I love 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 But when you give what happens it's over when the other side gives, the guy is satisfied, whatever it is, and the love is dissipated. Because it's not true love, it's a selfish love. And that's today, unfortunately, when you see the movies, when you hear normally in daily life, people say, I love you, I love you, I love you. If there's no commitment. That cannot be classified as love. So that brings us to the first issue. What is the definition of love? Love is the word used As we mentioned, to label the excitement of the young, the habituation of the middle-aged, and the mutual dependence of the old. Romance is not known to bring a clear perception and a sense of balance in weighing future marriage possibilities. The sickness, the sadness, and the magic distort reality and distort vision Selecting a lifelong partner under such heady intoxication is very hazardous. So when a person is madly in love, and they're mad it's really that state of madness, how can you select a partner when you're madly in love? How can a person select a partner when they are crazy? How can a person select a partner when they are moonstruck? Judaism treasures the love of husband and wife and surely knows the power and attraction of romantic love. Judaism gave the world the Bible the Psalms and the Song of Songs. It knew of love but not a pure love that is never consummated except between man and God but Judaism has a way of consummating the love between man and God, and that is, David and Jonathan, no, but there was, we'll talk about that. What do you mean by consummated? We're going to discuss. A relationship has to have give and take, and that itself is a kind of consummation. We consummate our love of God by doing things for God. There is no Romeo and Juliet in Jewish literature. Judaism is suspicious of powerful drives that cannot be disciplined, of blind urges of decisions which are non ethical. It considers ecstasy to be temporary and undependable in long range commitment. So you cannot depend on romance or in a state of ecstasy to last and be a long-term commitment, unless it can be transformed into everyday small acts of love. Judaism considers romantic love and affection in marriage to be desirable. It is one of a cluster of values that brings men and women into marital partnership. There is much in our historic character, and echoed in the Bible and Psalms and Song of Songs, Regarding love. Judaism holds that romantic love in the proper framework adds a dimension to life that can come from no other source. However, romantic love becomes foolish when it supplants other values. So, other critical values which are more important than romance in a marriage. That was the big debate between, and Phil on the roof, between Tevier and his wife. She couldn't understand this idea of romantic love. What is it? What is going on with you? You're crazy? What are you moonstruck? What happened to you? I'm totally committed to you, I'm doing all these things for you. What do you want? What more do you want? So much is the love for a wife assumed in Jewish law. But so the Bible explicitly commands us to love God, to love our neighbours. But never once does it explicitly demand of a man to love his wife. However, there is one opinion that Ramban, Ramban Nachmanides who says when the Torah says love your neighbors, it's a bad translation. It says, Love your rea. What's a re'ah? We find in the seven blessings of the chuppah under the canopy, one of the blessings refers to re'im Mahuvim. Beloved friends. Rea is a friend. Love your friend as yourself. Ramban Nachmanides says, your friend, your best friend, is your spouse. So We do have a mitzvah of loving one's spouse as oneself because as the Bible tells us in Genesis that should cling together and be one flesh. So if I love my spouse as myself, we are one. There's a famous story of, uh, there's a book called The Tzaddik in Our Time. A Tzaddik in Our Time. A very beautiful book. Um, about Rabbi Aryeh Levin who lived uh, not, re- not long ago in Jerusalem, and it says one day his his wife was sick, and he took her to the doctor. And he told the doctor, he said, "Our leg is hurting us." The doctor looked at him and scratched his head, and he said, "What do you mean?" He said, "Yes, our leg is hurting us." So again, he's looking at both of them. What's going on? He said, "My wife's head is my wife's leg is hurting us." So that's one body, one and two individuals, one unit. The idea that romantic love is desirable when associated with other values is reflected in the halakha and Jewish law. The law confronts the question, you know, the fifth commandment. What is the fifth commandment of the Ten Commandments? Honor your father and your mother. Fifth commandment, honoring one's parents. What happens when the fifth commandment is clashed with a person's desires? As I desire this woman, I love this woman, I find this woman suitable for me. My parents say, no, nope, break it off. We don't like her. What happens? The Jewish law would say, leave your parents and cling to your wife. That's the precept in Genesis. So we do find the idea that if the woman is suitable in terms of values and piety, the parents have no rights to reject their sons or their daughters chosen. Considering the enormous value that Judaism places on the fifth commandment, this decision to overrule parental objection in favor of love is astounding. Maimonides considers it perfectly permissible to look at a woman with, with the intent, with, with love, In order to determine whether she is physically suitable and lovable as a wife. Such looking or dating, as we would call it today, would not be considered to be motivated by immoral desires, if it is for the sake of marriage. When it exists, the love between a man and woman is one of the strongest forces in the world. However, love usually grows in stages. We find there are five stages of love mentioned in the Bible. It's interesting how much there is in the Bible um, which people don't even think about. But if you look at the sequence of love mentioned in the Bible, I have one of these CD-ROMs, they have the whole Bible on CD-ROM now. So CD-ROM, I put in the word love in the Bible and I did a search. It came out with, I'll tell you exactly how many sources. In the five books of Moses, Altogether, there are 39 mentions of the word love. But there is a sequence. The majority, the vast majority of them, are dealing with love of a wife or love of God. Let me give you a few examples. It says that Isaac loved his wife. Rebecca, it says that Jacob loved his wife Rachel, and again it repeats over and over again the story of Rachel and and, Isaac, and Jacob many times, the word love. But the first order, it's interesting to see the order, the sequences, different kinds of love, the first order it talks about is love of a child. When God comes to Isaac, God comes to Abraham and he tells Abraham, he says, take your son, the only son, the one you love, take Isaac. That's the first time in the Bible where it talks about the word love. Interesting. Why would it talk about love in a context of a child? When we think about love, we don't normally think of love in terms of a context of a, a child. We think about more in terms of partners. Why love of a child first? Well, let's go through the sequence and maybe we'll try and answer some questions. The, ke- the second source is Isaac and Rebecca. It says he took Rebecca as his wife and he loved her. Third source in sequence is love of a neighbor or a friend. As Rabbi Akiva put it, the major principle of the Torah is loving your neighbor as yourself. The fourth is love of God. and the fifth, anyone has it a guess, is love of a stranger. There is a law in the, in the Torah of loving a stranger, which usually refers to a convert, a person who converts to Judaism, is' a stranger amongst us, and uh, there's a mitzvah to love them. But why this order? It seems to be a very strange order. If I was thinking about writing a Bible, the first thing I'd put would love God. What's what's the first thing? Why talk about love of a child? And the answer is, how does a person, what is love? When the Bible defines love, this is how it defines love. It puts a child first. Why? How do you love a child? How does a person love a child? If We think about how our parents treated us. We can't remember that far back. But it starts basically with, the mother carrying the child for nine months. Now, I've never done this myself, but I can imagine how much trouble that would be if you have a stomachache. Um, think about it. Um person has a burden carrying a heavy pack on their back. You can imagine day in, day out, sleeping with a pack in, in front of you. You're carrying a heavy burden. And the just watching my wife go through the contortions of childbirth, I mean, she must love that child to go through all that. And then going through the agony of waking up in the middle of the night to change diapers and to feed the baby, why would a person do that? Either they're crazy or there's a tremendous love for a child. And it's a love which doesn't seem to have any payment, repayment. If parents expect their children to look after them the same way as they looked after them, forget about it. It's a misconceived conception. So why do people do it? And the answer is, that is the definition of love. Definition of love in Judaism is giving. Giving and a commitment to give without any thought of return. That is definition of love. That is true love. True love is the love. That's pure love. Pure love is love which is a commitment to give with no thought of return. And that is illustrated. The most unique relationship is parent-child relationship. Who loves who more? Who loves who more? A parent? Does the parent love the child more? Or does the child love the parent more? The parent loves the child more. So what is the secret of love? What is the secret? Why does a parent love the child more than the child love the parent? So the secret is investing. Let me give you an example. Anyone over here own any stocks? Or mutual funds? I'm sure everyone does. Um, Wish, okay. Amen. May your wish be granted. Okay. Um, If you're opening the... Stock page in the New York Times. Which one would you look at first? The one you have or the one you don't have? The one you have, right? Why? Because you've invested something in that stock. You have something, right? You have something, right? The term you root for. If you have something invested in something, you look for that first. That's the thing which grabs your attention first. Similarly in relationships. If I'm investing in a relationship, then that's the key to my life. I have to give and I invest it. I invest it. I've got so much at stake in that thing. i just got to keep on giving. The parents love the child more because they have much more invested in that child than the child has invested in them. They've been investing all their life in that child and they really care about their child because they've invested in So love means giving, which means investing with a commitment for endless investing. Just keeping on. That's really blind love. You hear of uh, of uh, parents divorcing their children. I mean, uh, we do find cases of parents putting their children up for foster or adoption. In in cases, but it's very unusual. It's very uncommon, and that's why there's a great shortage today of uh, adopted children. Of a great shortage. If a person wants to adopt a child, it's very hard to find one. Why is that? Ever heard of parents divorcing their children? There was a case recently in Florida of a child divorcing their parents. Was that two years ago, a year ago? But I never heard of a case of, a, of parents divorcing their children, formally divorcing their child. Why? Why is it? I didn't choose that child. I had no bearing on that child. I mean I just produced the child, but I was right. I was against my will. I mean I didn't really go in the market and choose the child, but I chose my wife. It should be the other way around. If I chose my wife, I did it willingly and with a knowledge, and I chose, and I knew the faults, I knew the failings, and I chose, and then I divorce. Does that make sense? What's more logical, to divorce something which was forced on me, or something which I did willingly, voluntarily? So the order is very important. The first principle is love is giving. That's why love of a child comes first. Second is love of a wife, because that also is involved with giving. A person gives, their spouse, hopefully. But true love is giving with no thought of return. Unfortunately, a lot of marriages break down because one party says, you know, I've been giving so much, and the other party hasn't been giving me enough. And the other party says the same thing. Why? Because we're both, unfortunately, we're living in a whole generation of takers, the me generation. I want, I want, I, 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 I. What does a spouse say? What can I do for you, dear? When you come home from work and you're tired and you come home and you say, Dear, what can I do for you? Or what can I make you for supper tonight? I need some money. I need to go shopping. I need some love and affection. I need, I need, I need. What can I do for you? If I think of her and she thinks of me, if I think of satisfying her and she thinks of satisfying me, there would be no problems what happens is, no, it's the other way around. She's not satisfying me enough. And he's not satisfying me enough. And I want this and she wants this and this and that and the other. What happens? So the secret of love is giving and a commitment to give just like in a relationship, parent-child relationship. The secret of true love is giving with sometimes just no thought of return. And then the Bible tells us you will love a stranger. Love your neighbor as yourself. What do you mean love your neighbor as yourself? If you can't love your child and you can't love your spouse, forget about loving your neighbor. I mean, that's, that's impossible. If I can't love my own family, how can I love someone outside the family? And then it says love God. Because we can't love our fellow human beings who are physical and who can see. How can we love God? It's very easy to say, you know, I love God. But what does it mean? First, we have to learn what love is and when we know what love is we can start talking about loving god and then finally loving a stranger because it's harder to love a stranger if you don't feel any empathy you don't feel any connection the connection is god god created everyone in his image that's what we say right at the beginning of the bible one of the things judaism gave to the world is the universality of man every single human being doesn't talk about color doesn't talk about race every single human being is created in the image of god And if we love God, then we can love every single human being. That brings us closer, That unites humanity. So those are the five stages. Love of a child. Then love of a spouse. Love of a neighbor. Love of God. And then love of a stranger. Those are the five stages of love mentioned in the Bible. Which will give us a little bit of a glimpse of what the Bible considers love to be. We said love is... Commitment to give with some, no thought of return. Just giving, giving, continuous giving, as in the parent-child relationship. But love like that would only grow in stages. To say I love you is a tremendous commitment, leaving a person very vulnerable. And people feel this, and that's a lot of people have broken their hearts. Why? I told her she loves me, and she never said I love you in return. She said I don't love you, or vice versa. The process of falling in love, therefore, usually proceeds step by step. Even when the inside feeling of love is very strong, its communication must follow a slower course. If the answers are right, the statements can get stronger. First, it should start off, you are very nice. That leads to, I like you. And finally, I love you. So commitments are not easily given. A person shouldn't just commit and say, you know what, I love you. It has no meaning. Because really what it means is the opposite. I want you, I love myself and I want you. If a person really wants to commit, you commit in stages. First you say, I like you. Say you're nice. And then slowly builds up into, I love you. Love and lust should not be confused. While love wants to give, lust wants to take. and That's unfortunate, that's the biggest mistake we're making today. Love is a reciprocal arrangement when one identifies with the wants and needs of the beloved. I find an interesting story in the Bible. I find Jacob was tricked by his father-in-law. His father-in-law's name was Lavan, which means white. But Really, even his name was a trick because he was the black as, as black can be. He was a trickster. And Jacob worked seven years for Rachel. And what happened? Lavan... At the wedding ceremony, which is where we get this Jewish custom of uncovering the veil, lifting up the veil of the wife before the wedding. Bedecah, it's called. He tricks her, puts someone else in the place, and in the morning, it says, Jacob wakes up, which we'll, we'll talk about later on, um, why he didn't realize earlier. it's is one of the lectures later on. Um, he wakes up and he finds another woman over there. So he goes back to his father-in-law. He says, you trickster! you tricked me. He says, well, in our country, we don't do what you did you know, to your brother. We always give the older one before the younger one. We don't do, you know, he's hinting to him, you're a trickster, you tricked your older brother. We don't do that in our country. So the arrangement was, okay, I'll give it to you after seven days. But for that first wife, for that Rachel, he worked for seven years. If you have to wait seven years to marry someone who you love, how long would that seem to you? How long would that time be to you? A short time or a longer time? Be a torture. Imagine, I love this woman. I want, her, I want her so desperately. I love her so much. And you know what? I've got to wait. My father-in-law says, wait seven years. You've got to work for me for seven years first. And then, that's it. That's, this is your prize. Seven years. Those seven years are going to be torture. Those seven years are going to be like 20 years or like 50 years. Because time will drag and pass slowly. The Bible says the opposite. The Bible says Seven years were like a few days in his eyes. It's very, very hard to understand. Why would seven years be like a few days in his eyes? And the answer is If you think of love as giving Then you can wait. Those seven years will be like a few days. But if a person thinks of love as taking I need it, I want it, I need it, I desire it, I want it. It's going to stretch into 20 years, 50 years, 100 years. So Jacob those years were like a few days in his eyes. Let's go through the five stages again because they're very, very important. First one is love of Abraham for Isaac, his son. Which is love of a child. Genesis 22. The second one is love between man and woman. This is Isaac love Rivka, Rebecca. 24, verse 24 in Genesis. Chapter 24. Three is love of one's neighbor, love of God, and love of a stranger. Of that order. Love means feeling about another person. So with a commitment and with a giving, a person invests, we said, you look at that stock first. Why? Because you start caring about it. You start worrying about it. You start feeling about it. When you love a person, that person's happiness becomes very dear to you. As important to you as your own happiness. You know, my father in law is a genius. I don't know what his IQ is, but socially, I mean, uh, he's a genius. He came to me three days after my, my wedding and he says, You know, I want to just have a little heart to heart talk with you, man to man. I said, Okay, sure, come on in. He comes in. My wife was away, she was somewhere else. He comes in and he says, You know what? Let me tell you a little secret. You want to be happy? I said, Yeah, sure, I want to be happy. So let me tell you a little secret said, if your wife is happy, you will be happy. If she is unhappy, you will be unhappy. So The guy was a genius. Because <laughs> you want, you, you you want, everyone wants to be happy. We all want to be happy. How can we be happy? I can't be happy. She's not letting me be happy. But if I make sure that she's happy, she'll make sure I'm happy. So it works both ways. But that is really true love is caring, sharing, commitment and giving. One does not love a person because of anything that that person has or does. But simply because that person exists, we find this with a child. What does that child do? In the middle of the night? And you want to wring its neck? And you say, oh, I love you, I love you, I love you, my child, my baby. Why do you love the child? What has it done? It did not do anything! but Simply because it exists. Baby exists and smiles a little smile. That's it. There's a beautiful section of the Mishnah which is called Ethics of the Fathers, which is really a book of ethics and moral principles written thousands of years ago by our greatest minds, which really applies till today. I mean, it's fresh as today. And it gives us a beautiful idea in terms of love. It tells us it depends on the motives. Love depends on motives. When love depends on another factor, then when that factor ceases to exist, so does the love. If I marry someone for their beauty, what happens? When the beauty fails, what happens? Love disappears. If I marry someone for their money, when they run out of money, what happens? Bang. You know, I just saw. I think it was yesterday, the day before one of the pastors not Jewish he says uh, whenever whenever uh, a couple come to me they want to get married so I asked the girl, this is uh, in uh, Manhattan I asked the girl maybe you fell in love with his BMW would you marry him if he wouldn't have a BMW? and uh, he asked the guy he says would you marry her if she didn't look so pretty? And those are the questions which we have to ask ourselves because certain things we cannot take for granted. Certain things are transient. So when love depends on another factor, then when the factor ceases to exist, so does the love. But when love does not depend on anything else, it never ceases to exist. For example, the Mishnah gives us two examples. The love of Amnon and Tamar. Amnon and Tamar were relatives, very close relatives and he was in love with her. He couldn't live without her. He was crazy about her. What happens? He fakes illness and in his illness she comes to look after him and he, he rapes her. And from that day on it says he didn't talk to her again. He did not desire her anymore. The second love it talks about is the love of David and Jonathan, which is mentioned as an example of love which is not dependent on anything. Jonathan, here he was, the son of the king. His rival and his brother-in-law was anointed to be the next king. And he didn't care. Here he was, his rival, biggest rival, was his brother-in-law. And instead of fighting with him, instead of hating him, he helped him and his own father couldn't understand. He says, you're crazy? Are you a rebellious child? You're crazy? So true love does not expect anything in return nor does it merely anticipate pleasure it is wholly altruistic. You know there's such a pleasure in giving and when a person gives say charity or they volunteer their time or they help someone who's needy or you go to visit someone in the hospital you feel good about it. When a person gives they feel good and a person who is altruistic will feel more pleasure in giving than taking. And that's why a person knows what kind of level they're on. If I feel more pleasure in taking than in giving, it's a lower level. If I feel more pleasure in giving than taking, that's a much higher level. There's a beautiful gematria. Gematria means, in Hebrew, there's a numerical value for every letter. The word in Hebrew for love is Ahava. Ahava. And today you go to Israel, you'll find lots of songs Ahava, Ahava this, Ahava that. Ahava. The numerical value of Ahava is 13. Aleph is 1, He is 5, Red is 2, and He is 5. You said 13. Numerical value of Ahava is 13, which is the same numerical value as the word Echad. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. God is one. One. The letters. Aleph, one. Chet is eight. And dalit is four. Echad, you get 13. So Hava and Echad are related. Love is meant to bring a closeness, a unity, a one oneness. So that's the biblical um, perspective on love. And uh, as opposed to the French and European concept of romance, which, unfortunately, society has today adopted. And that's why, unfortunately, a lot of relationships are breaking up, because people think, you know, love is over, love is finished. She doesn't give me enough, he doesn't give me enough. The romance is over, the passion is over, it's all finished. What do we do? Let me just tell you a little story. We'll stop over here in terms of passion. um, And we'll come back to this in a different uh, class. There's a, there's a story. It's a true story. A famous doctor in Europe, um, Doctor Frankl, Victor Frankl. Have you heard of him? Victor Frankl. So he would also uh, counsel mar- married couples. So one day, a married couple came to him. Said, Doctor, we have no passion for each other. The Passion has ended. I said, Okay. I said, uh, Take these pills once a day. They're placebos. They're nothing to them and abstain, don't touch each other till you come back, come back in a week and we'll discuss it further Okay, They come back in a week's time So you know, the guy says, the doctor, he says, you know, I feel much better now I feel more passion is coming back He says, okay, let's continue the medication, continue the medication again, abstain for another week and come back A week later, Dr. Frankel got a phone call He says, doctor, he says, I feel great We had relations last night, this morning, and we're going to do it again tonight. I don't need you anymore to help with you. (laughs) But what do we see over there? We see that passion has a way of dissipating itself. If you say love is passion, it's not, because passion just vanishes out the window. So love is something deeper, and the secret of love is commitment to give, to share, and to unify. And that's a thought which I want to leave you with tonight. Um, we'll continue next week with the second uh, lecture. Any questions? Anyone with any questions? Yes yeah yeah that th- we go through the series according to the timetable and the and the bullet and the bulletin. My name is Rabbi Bassus, and I'd like to welcome you to the first in our series on love and marriage. I Hope you all have this uh, sheet. and you can in. Some years ago, I had the occasion to officiate at the marriage of a young American man to a beautiful American woman. The groom was an Orthodox Jew reared in a strictly orthodox home, where the father wore a beard, mother wore a shetel. The bride, on the other hand, was raised in the usual Jewish-American manner. The wedding ceremony had come to an end. The glass had been broken. She turned towards him, and suddenly he seemed in a quandary. Immediately I s-